law of defamation protects individuals' reputations, but to what extent should it also protect the reputations of companies? Does the law strike the right balance between companies' rights to protect their interests and individuals' rights to criticise them? We try to sort out the competing arguments in this edition of the Media Law Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. In 2013, Parliament passed the most recent Defamation Act, which reformed the law of libel and slander in several ways. One of the key aims of the legislation was to make the law more defendant-friendly, and one of the measures adopted to try to make that happen was Section 1. Section 1, subsection 1, requires defamation claimants to show that the allegedly defamatory statement caused or was likely to cause serious reputational harm. But Parliament added in an additional requirement for companies, bodies that trade for profit. Bodies that trade for profit must also show that the statement caused or was likely to cause them serious financial loss. The aim of all this was to prevent big companies from squashing criticism levelled at them by members of the public with the threat of libel litigation. But this measure raises some fascinating questions about the nature of companies' standing in defamation claims. Should companies' reputations be protectable at law? Should they even be regarded as having reputations worth protecting in the way that human beings' reputations are seen as worth protecting? And if they do have value, what is the basis of that value? To discuss all this and more, I'm joined by Peter Coe from the University of Reading. Hi, Pete. Hi, Tom. And also by David Acheson from the University of Kent. Hi, Dave. Hi. You both come at this from quite different perspectives. Uh, I'm, I'm aware of that. So uh, I think perhaps to begin with, I'd start by inviting each of you to uh, outline what your work focuses on when it comes to corporate defamation and the perspectives that, that you take. And perhaps we'll start with, with Pete. Yeah, sure. So I suppose the bottom line for me, Tom, is that um, defamation shouldn't just be reserved to protecting the reputation of individuals. Um, it should also be applicable to companies. Um, and the, the reason I argue that this should be the case is, is because of the value um, that company reputation has, not only to the companies themselves, but also to um, uh, their employees, to the communities in which they operate, to their local economy, to the wider economy. Um, and because of that, it's, it's inherently valuable. Um, and, and, and actually, uh, I suppose what I argue really is that um, the reputation of companies, and this, is, this, this applies not just to big companies, but also to small companies, um, can affect many individuals, not just, not just the company itself. Um, and, and so my, my argument has always been that actually, you know, company reputation is extremely valuable. And in some instances, it's probably more valuable than, than the reputation of individuals. Just to pick up on one thing you said there before I um, invite Dave to say something there, Pete, is you said that you think that companies' reputation is inherently valuable. Hmm. Um, the examples that you've cited are all quite functional. 
um, you're talking about the uh, the benefits to the economy, whether that's the local or national economy that come with um, reputation and, and the benefits, I suppose, financially to the companies themselves. So is the value really inherent or is it a kind of consequential functionalist value? That's a very good question. Um, I think it is inherently valuable because, um, you know, as companies themselves, particularly in today's day and age, I think they are, we, you know, we, we see now um, individuals, for instance, that have built businesses just based on their reputation. If you look at kind of social media influencers, for instance, um, these are people that have, have, have built a business and um, their entire business rests on their reputation. Um, they are making some sort of, uh, I mean, they're, they're gaining financially from it, whether it be through the fact they're making money or they're being given free trips to hotels or whatever, or they're being given free products, that they're, whatever it might be. But ultimately, um, I think it is inherently valuable for, for, that, for that reason. So uh, let me bring Dave in here because Dave, you take um, a, a rather different view on um, the value of uh, corporate reputations. So I wonder if you could outline what your perspective is and um, the work that, that you've been doing on it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think that the corporate interest in reputation is not inherently valuable. It's only instrumentally valuable the company in terms of um, its financial value or sometimes its value in uh, helping the company to pursue broader non-financial goals. Um, and that defamation law being an um, area of civil law where the claimant is suing to protect their interests is meant to be protecting the claimant's interest and reputation not the interests of, um, directly anyway, the interests of employees or the public or whatever. The company's interest in its reputation is only instrumental. So it is much more limited than the individual interest and reputation that human claimants will be trying to protect when they sue. Um, and I think my sort of broad position is that that more limited um, corporate interest in reputation isn't sufficient to justify the quite significant effects that the existence of the corporate right to sue has on people's freedom of speech when they are talking about and criticizing the activities of companies. Just to pick you up on one of those things, Dave, um, you, you, you've drawn a distinction there between what you see as the instrumental value of corporate reputation and the value of human reputation. I guess implicit in that, um, I would think, is the notion that individual human reputation is valuable in a rather different way. Could you say something about where you see the value of individuals' reputation as, as coming from? Ah, that's a really um, difficult question, and I don't think I can answer it. Um, I've thought about it quite a lot. Um, it's really difficult to, to pin down what the inherent value of individual reputation is. 
it's something probably to do with dignity, something to do with um, potentially your your sort of feelings, your self esteem. Um, but I think pinning it down for this particular question about corporate reputation, pinning down the inherent interest in individual reputation isn't actually necessary. All you need to do is recognize that there is an inherent value to individual reputation. I just care about what other people think about me. Um, and why I care about that is not quite as important um, as recognizing that companies don't have that kind of interest. In Yes, I'm reminded of uh, that quote from Othello when Cassio describes his reputation as that immortal part of himself, which he uh, wails about having lost when his reputation is traduced. Uh, and I suspect that, that's, that that kind of gets to the heart of it, right? It's a, it's a thing that's very difficult to define, but we know it when we lose it. It's that... Yeah. part of ourselves yeah. that we that we value because we're human yeah absolutely and um in one of the uh most important corporate defamation cases before the 2013 act called jameel and wall street journal uh, lord hoffman referred to that um or quoted that um passage of othello when he was talking about the distinction between corporate reputation and um individual reputation hmm so, yeah. Pete, um, can corporations value their reputation in the same way or in an analogous way to the way that people value their reputation? I suppose there's a couple of points to make about this. I think the first point I was going to make, which is, uh, and I'll come back to that question in just a second, I think one of the things we, we forget about when we talk about corporate reputation, which I've been really keen to kind of, um, I suppose, press home with some of my work, is that I completely understand the reasons behind Defamation Act 2013, and um, it was to stop, you know, the big, the bigger companies, um, uh, as you said, sort of, you know, squashing the, the ability of um, uh, these defendants um, to, um, to to speak out about these big companies. But actually, one of the kind of concerns I have had is is protecting the rights of smaller companies, um, and that kind of leads me on, I suppose, I suppose to how I uh, to, to my to my answer to your question. Um, I, I think that it, it can apply to companies because I think um, you will have some organisations that people just want to work for um, because of their because of their reputation, um, not necessarily as a money making organisation, but as, for instance, a place to work, the type of work that they're doing, the culture within the workplace. Um, all of those kind of, uh, I suppose, in almost intangible aspects, um, will uh, all go towards that company's reputation. It, go, it, it goes towards almost that kind of dignity um, point that Dave was making. It's kind of something you can't really, you can't really put your finger on. And again, I'm with Dave on this. I, I think it's almost impossible to kind of define. But there are some companies or some organisations that people just want to work for. I know that you know in the uh, um, in the debates leading up to the um, the Defamation Act coming into force, they were talking about the BBC being one of these organisations, for instance. Um, slightly different to your normal kind of big money-making corporation. Um, so, and, and, of course, and the, other, the other point I, I was going to make as well is, is, again, it kind of goes back to the point I made a little while ago, is that we're now seeing a different type of business, which is these, you know, uh, uh, 
individuals who are making money and some of making significant amounts of money um, purely based on their reputation, nothing else, um, because they're doing it through social media, through YouTube, through the internet. Um, and I think they are, for them, their reputation is absolutely everything. Um, it, because it's all they have. Um, it's kind of an, almost uh, an, an intangible asset. But are these people, and maybe Dave has some thoughts on this, are these people, these social media influencers and so forth, are they really bodies trading for profit or are they not just people with the same reputation, rights and interests as any other lay person? Well, yeah, they are. They are people. So that, that's the distinction um, there. The, the, what Pete was saying about this um, idea that there are um, aspects of corporate reputation that aren't maybe directly... Um, uh, directly to do with their financial performance. So um, whether this is a place that people want to work and those are sort of intangible aspects of their reputation. I mean, it is definitely true that those things exist and that there, there are some companies, some organisations that people really want to work for, not because they are they perform well financially, but because of some other uh, aspects of their uh, reputation. But I think the question I would ask is, well, okay, why does the company have an interest in having that kind of reputation as a place to work? Um, it's probably because it enables it to attract employees. It enables it to retain employees. It enables it to have a more motivated, more productive workforce. And ultimately, enables it to be a more successful organization, whether that's in uh, pursuing profit or whatever other um, purposes or objects the organization has. I think the points that we've just hit upon really go to the heart of something that I wanted to, to ask you both, which is to what extent is it possible to separate out the reputational interests of a small business from those of the owners of that business. And the reason I ask this question, and I'm going to indulge myself in a little digression here, is that I recently was reading the Northern Irish case of Lee and Asher's Bakery. This was the case about the, uh, the gay cake, as it's become known in the media rather superficially. Um, the, the gentleman who placed an order for a, a, a cake bearing a slogan promoting gay marriage, a Northern Irish bakery that turned it down. This ended up in court, ended up in the Supreme Court. Um, and the Supreme Court, um, well, before the Supreme Court, the defendants argued that their Article 9 right to manifest their religion in whichever way they chose meant they could not be forced to produce a cake with a slogan on it with which they disagreed on religious grounds. The defendants here being uh, the owners of the bakery who were practicing Christians and identified with a conservative form of Christianity. Um, but another defendant in that case, and this is what I thought was crucial, was the bakery itself. Now, the Supreme Court ended up conflating the two and saying, yes, the owners cannot be forced to go against their Article 9 
write their beliefs uh, on religious grounds, but neither can the bakery. And I was very surprised by this because it struck me as bizarre that the bakery itself could be given the benefit of Article 9. Um, and are we talking about something kind of similar here when we're dealing with small businesses and reputational interests? So that's the reason why I asked the question. Can we separate out effectively the interests of the small business from uh, those of its owner? That's such a good question. I, I, when um, Pete was talking about smaller companies, um, I, I also thought of this case. Um, and I've got to say that I, I agree with your um, surprise at the judgment. I, I'm a big fan of Lady Hale, but I thought that this judgment was flawed on a number of counts. And this is one of the reasons it was flawed. The, the um, conflation between the uh, individuals and the bakery wasn't, I don't think, even necessary to make the decision that the Supreme Court made. And it's made in a really short passage right at the end of the judgment. It's thrown in almost as an afterthought, but it, it, it doesn't make sense. The company is a distinct legal person from the um, managers or the shareholders or um, the owners of the company. Um, and it, it doesn't, merely by virtue of being owned by people with certain religious beliefs, it, it doesn't um, adopt those religious beliefs as its own. Yeah. Uh, so I, I agree with that, definitely. And the benefits, of course, accrue to the owners when that veil of incorporation, mm -hmm. as the company lawyers amongst us would call it, um, is lowered. So you incorporate the company to protect yourself from personal liability should something go wrong with the company, should it fail or should it be hit with a major damages claim or whatever. You limit your liability. That's the point of it. But what the Supreme Court is, is, has done in the Leon Ash's case is kind of implicitly suggest that the veil of incorporation can be raised and lowered at will, that if you'll all forgive the pun, the, the defendants can have their cake and eat it. Mm -hmm. um, they can be protected when they want to be protected from exter external claims um, uh, through the company, and then they can cast aside the company's protection when they want to be protected through their own human rights. Um, Pete, I've not let you come back on this yet, so... Um, I, I agree with, with what Dave said. I mean, I think um, it, it was an odd decision, and actually they are separate. The reputation of the owner is separate to the reputation of the business because, as you said, it's a separate legal entity. That, at least, is how, how it should work legally. Of course, you know, if you've got a, a relatively small business that's been in a local community for many, many years um, and is part of that local community, probably practically... Um, you'll find that the you know the reputation of the person who is maybe the, the owner or the director, the managing director of that company, may be inextricably linked with the company itself um, from you know a, a lay person's perspective. But certainly from a legal perspective, Dave's absolutely right, and I I agree entirely with that. They are separate legal entities and should be treated as such. And it is a surprising, or it was a surprising decision, a surprising judgment. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's certainly my view on it as well. So I think there is actually an, an argument against the right to sue of these smaller companies that in, in some ways um, contradicts what we've just said about them having 
um, separate legal personality and separate um, reputations from their owners, which is that in practice, very often when these smaller companies sue, they sue Mm -hmm. alongside their managers or owners in respect of exactly the same statement and reach the same conclusion so that um, there are free speech issues with allowing big companies to sue. But there's also the question um, with regard to smaller companies about whether it's actually really necessary for the company to have the right to sue in defamation, given that in most cases, um, the individual owner or manager or sole shareholder or whatever it is, will have their own right to sue in respect of the same statement. Dave, Dave's absolutely right about that as well. But I think that they need to maintain that right because that wouldn't necessarily apply to every small company. There will be some small companies that, um, you know, have been, they are still a relatively small company, but they've been sold. The, 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 the Perhaps the person that was initially associated with that company no longer owns it and it's somebody completely separate. Um, and I think in those circumstances, the company would need to retain the right to sue because it, it would just be the company that would sue. Um, that's certainly the way I would, from a, from a practical perspective, but I, I also do agree with what Dave's saying, that that, that does happen in practice, um, certainly sometimes at least. Yeah. Um, so one of the um, bits of research that I've done, I did it a few years ago, was it looked back over um, all of the corporate defamation judgments that have been handed down by the um, High Court in the 10 years preceding the 2013 Act coming into force, so between 2004 and 2013. Um, and if you look just at the successful corporate claimants, so companies that sued in defamation and were able to establish liability and um, get a remedy, almost all of those claimants were either able to sue in a different cause of action, so say malicious falsehood or whatever, also successfully, or sued alongside an individual. There's only one case where, called Metropolitan International Schools, where a corporate claimant succeeded um, with a defamation claim, where there wasn't at the same time a successful claim either in another cause of action or by an associated individual. So. Yes, there will be some cases in which a um, company can't sort of indirectly protect its reputation through um, a claim brought by an individual to protect their own personal reputation. But I think actually that those cases are more limited or, or more or rarer, uh, less common than you might think. Hmm. Let's turn to look at the free speech implications of um, of all of this, because one thing, Dave, that you mentioned much earlier on um, was that the ability of corporations to bring claims um, can skew the free speech balance that the court has to perform between the interests of the claimant and the interests of the defendant. So I'd like to ask, what impact does uh, the capacity for corporations to bring claims and defamation have on the free speech of individuals? And 
are the provisions in Section 1 of the Defamation Act sufficient to counteract any negative effect on the claimant, on the defendant? So what impact does uh, the capacity for companies to sue in defamation have on uh, freedom of speech? It's impossible to tell because the purpose of, uh, not all, but some at least, um, threats of litigation or uh, claims that are filed is to silence criticism. Mm -hmm. So if those uh, threats are effective, then we won't find out about them by definition. So it's really difficult, if not impossible, to get a sense of the true scale of um, how corporate threats to sue um, affect the ability of people to sort of publish in important criticisms of, of companies. And then there's also the problem that even absent any threat to sue, um, the possibility that you would be sued uh, induces a kind of um, overcautiousness where especially the um, sort of traditional media who have uh, economic incentives not to get sued are going to be more cautious than they perhaps should be um, in publishing criticisms of companies that they know uh, are likely to do. And the other bit of the question, <laughs> which I'd forgotten about, was um, is section one, does section one help um, significantly? And I think the answer to that is probably not, um, because the, the problem is not so much um, companies successfully suing and getting an award of damages. The, the problem is the cost complexity um, of the litigation process itself. Um, and of course, even if a company is unsuccessful in, in meeting this new uh, serious financial loss test in Section 1 of the 2013 Act, the process of finding that out, the process of getting a court to say this um, corporate claim is not strong enough, could cost tens or even hundreds of thousands of pounds. And would I be right in um, thinking your solution to this problem would be to deny bodies trading for profit standing to bring defamation claims at all? Yes, um, I would go slightly broader than that and um, deny standing uh, in defamation to any entity other than a human being. Even for claims against other corporations? So if one corporation slandered, uh, libeled another or slandered another, would, would you deny standing in that instance? Yes. Right. Well, it's clear. Like that. <laughs> Pete, free speech. Yeah, so um, I, I didn't disagree with a, with a lot of the stuff that Dave said, and I think that um, you know, it is difficult to work out the effect that allowing companies to sue in corporation, uh, sorry, allowing corporations to sue in defamation, um, the actual effect it does have on free speech. I think it is difficult, difficult to sort of work out um, exactly. But let's not forget the fact that sometimes the defendant isn't, you know, an individual and we don't have a massive corporate claimant um, that wants to kind of stifle free speech. Um, it could be the other way around. You know, we could have a situation, we've got a relatively small company um, who is the claimant, 
and you've got a big media organization on the other side with um, you know plenty of money and plenty of resources behind and that does that does happen um, uh, so I think that's something to kind of uh, you know to, to, to bear in mind when we're talking about whether or not corporations should have standing to sue in defamation you know it's not always as I've said that the, you know the big corporation trying to stifle criticism from an individual for instance that that, that isn't always the case sometimes it's the other way around or at least sometimes the parties have have parity um, you know you might have a, a relatively large media organization criticizing a relatively large company um, and uh, you know it goes back to the point I've made before about the fact that I think that you know corporate reputation has value outside of the company um, uh, you know it doesn't just it, and of course it does affect the, the financial performance of the company I wouldn't deny that it's uh, it will affect the health and prosperity of that of that company or it could do at least but in a lot of cases it also has an impact outside of the company uh, and, and on employees so why shouldn't in my view why shouldn't a company have standing if their reputation has been um, you know uh, wrongly um, dealt a blow by um, by another organisation or by an individual, and they can show serious results. Which also, and going and actually going back to the point, you know, Dave was making is it, 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 it is you know we know it's difficult. We know it's difficult to establish serious financial loss. There are certain, there are you know causation real causation issues with establishing serious financial loss, um, which can make it either that that itself. Um, will prevent, in a lot of cases, these companies from bringing a claim um, because, as you know, just just making out that the or, or establishing that a particular statement led to a led to a, a serious financial loss can be extremely difficult. Sometimes it's impossible. So, just to pick up on that one, though, um, I mean, in the case take the case of Berkey and Seventy Thirty, for instance, which was a relatively small business. Um, that you know, brought a claim. Uh, I, I, I take your point about the causation issues, but the seriousness of the loss that had to be shown was a pretty low hurdle, so long as it could be shown that, say, there was a uh, there was a likelihood that one client might have left this company where the the fee for joining was that was a thousand pounds or something. It wasn't a huge amount of money. The court was still prepared to say that taking a thousand pounds or a couple of thousand pounds out of a company's revenue, if they're a small company, was serious. Um, which strikes me as making the hurdle perhaps easier to cross than I'd envisaged when when Section One Two was was passed. Yeah, and I take your point. I think there are there's still a lot of um, controversy over how serious financial loss is established. I mean, you've got the you know. The, the kind of paradigm example, of course, is where you've got a you know a direct financial loss in which the the company can seek to to prove direct losses caused by the impact of a defamatory statement on customers or on its clients. But then you've got the the other kind of uh, I suppose slightly more difficult ways of establishing serious financial loss, which relate to things like money spent by the claimant on mitigating the damage caused by the statement by you know for example um, employing a public relations consultant or engaging in publicity that has been used successfully um, before um, also uh, arguably uh, using sort of wasted wasted management time which is spent dealing with problems caused by the defamatory statements has also been used successfully so there are other ways of doing it um, 
I, I still think it, it, it is difficult. I, think, I still think in a lot of cases, it will pre present difficulties for corporate claimants from a causation perspective, whatever method they choose. Um, maybe not in all of them, um, but I think in, in most it will cause causation issues. Dave, do you want to come back on any of that? Yeah, on a few bits of it, actually, if that's all right. Um, Absolutely. So I think there are four uh, things that I wanted to quickly respond to, um, and I'm going to try and do it in order that uh, Pete or you uh, mentioned them. The first one was this idea that um, sometimes a small company claimant would sue a huge media corporation um, and that that is kind of uh, counter to the narrative of people like me who um, advocate for restrictions on the corporate rights to and defamation. Um, I would just point out there that the, the value of the speech is an issue at least the value to the public, it's still the same. Um, so it's not, I don't think it's a sort of directly comparable um, case to where a large company, which only really has its own interests and um, reputation, uh, is suing a, a smaller, uh, less well-resourced defendant. Um, he asked, the question, why shouldn't a company have standing to sue if their reputation has been wrongly harmed and they can show serious financial loss? The answer to that question is they can sue. They can sue in malicious falsehood. If they can show that the harm to their reputation was wrongly caused, as in the defendant was culpable, one of the big problems with the corporate right to sue in defamation, there's no requirement to show that the defendant was at fault. Um, and I would question whether it is uh, justifiable to uh, impose liability on people who are criticizing companies when they're not actually at fault. And that leads on to the uh, Berkey decision, which um, you mentioned, uh, Tom which I, I agree with you um, and what you've uh, previously written about that decision, it, it's an absurdly bad decision in a number of different ways. Um, and thankfully, I think it's now been um, reversed by the Court of Appeal, although I don't think we have a judgment yet. Mm. One, one of the things is on the um, seriousness threshold uh, for the financial loss, which um, Tom Wright in a blog post somewhere else uh, calculated the the loss relied on by the claimant in, in 7030, uh, that's the Berkey case, amounted to about 1.4% of, of its yearly turnover. Um, and that was considered a, a serious financial loss, which seems um, unrealistic to me. And can I make one more point? Yes, of course. So the last point is on Pete's argument that um, proving the causative link between um, a defamatory statement and serious financial loss is going to be difficult for claimants um, under the uh, 2013 Act. I, I completely agree in a sort of 
practical sense that, yeah, there will be a lot of cases where, for one reason or another, um, it will be difficult to show that the statements complained of were the cause of whatever loss the company is claiming to have suffered. I think we need to keep in mind, though, that in a lot of those cases, the reason that it is difficult to show a causative link between the statement and the loss is because there, there was, in fact, no causative link between the statement and the loss. If there are a bunch of other things happening at the same time that might harm the company, then maybe it wasn't actually um, the defendant's statement that caused the loss. And in that case, there's no justification for imposing liability for that loss onto the defendant. Um, Dave's last point, I don't disagree with, and it, it kind of relates to um, uh, the case of Tesla and BBC, where, where Lord Justice Morbix said something very, very similar. Uh, essentially, you know, how, do you, how do you separate out um, uh, statements which are damaging, but which are true, from the statements which are damaging but which are untrue and are therefore potentially actionable. I mean, Tesla and, and BBC was a, was predominantly um, concerned with malicious falsehood, but the same principle can apply. So, uh, you know, I I can absolutely see Dave's point there. I, I don't disagree with it. Well, I think that um, it's interesting that you've to, to to have heard that about the Berkey and seventy thirty case. I'd I'd missed that it was. Uh, had now been heard in the Court of Appeal, but um, I'll look out for the judgment, and I guess I should probably write something about it when it's <laughs> uh, when I've had a chance to read it, um, because, yeah, that was a problematic decision, but I didn't see how it could have survived the Lachaud decision in the Supreme Court, which kind of, uh, which, which dealt with the issues I identified in the piece I wrote in Communications Law, and which I've, I've talked about on this podcast before, and anyone listening can you can scroll back through earlier episodes to you know, other ones on defamation where I've talked about that case. Yeah, I mean, the the one thing that I would say um, on that, I, I think you're right that um, I'm, I'm hoping that this um, Court of Appeal Berkey decision is going to um, sort out quite um, comprehensively the, the problems um, in the, the High Court decision. Whether the Supreme Court's Michaud decision on um, subsection one, the, the serious harm requirement that applies to um, all claimants, is going to be uh, particularly effective in um, encouraging courts to be a bit more demanding of corporate claimants in particular. Um, th there's been one High Court decision on subsection 2, the serious financial loss requirement, since the Supreme Court handed down its Michaud judgment on subsection 1. And that judgment, which is in a case called Alco Cobert Limited and Sandy, maybe, I'm probably saying almost all of those words wrong, but that's the, the case. That decision was also really problematic um, on the serious financial loss requirement. In, in, in fact, it might even have been more problematic than the Berkey decision. It's just not consistent with the Supreme Court decision in the show. So, you know, hopefully the Supreme Court's the show judgment and the Court of Appeals Berkey judgment might lead to some uh, clarification and uh, improvement of the kind of interpretation of uh, subsection two in the High Court. But I'm not sure that it 
will in all cases. And of course, the problem with all these cases is that, you know, even if we eventually stab, establish in, in Berkey that the um, defendant isn't liable, well, how much has been spent on litigation costs? How long has this uh, woman who, th this case arose because um, the corporate claimant fraudulently misrepresented the services it offered to her in an attempt to induce her to pay it several thousand pounds in membership fees and the result of the defamation claim against her is that she's been you know had to um go through the whole court process for what, a couple of years now and this fundamentally undermines the whole purpose behind section one and particularly subsection two yeah exactly well i'm with you on that um, gentlemen, that is all we have time for. This has been fascinating. Thank you both very much indeed. Oh, no, thanks, Tom. Really appreciate it, and thanks for inviting us. Yeah, thank you. That was fun. We will be back. Uh, the Media Law Podcast will return in the new year. So uh, from all of us here, let me wish you a very happy Christmas 2019. Uh, we'll see you on the other side. Thank you, goodbye.